Morten Albæk is a Danish philosopher, business executive, honorary professor, best-selling author and public speaker. He's the founder of advisory firm Volentas, which specializes in culture, strategies and investments that creates a meaningful impact. As the only Scandinavian, he's been selected five times for the internationalists' list of the 100 most influential CMOs in the world. His book, One Life, How We Forgot to Live Meaningful Lives, has just been launched in English, and I'm delighted to meet Morten for a chat about this, as well as his career and work as a CMO for Vistas. Right, on with the show. From Studio Rue, I'm Yessi Fram, and this is Bosses for Breakfast, the show where I talk with entrepreneurs, creatives, and inspiring visionaries about their successes and their failures around advertising and what they're bringing forward today. Hey, Morgan, thanks for joining me today. I've Great been, pleasure. Yeah, really, really, really excited to have you here. It's a breakfast show, as you know. So first question will be, I know you've been up incredibly early this morning. You just came from Denmark, you're now in London. Do you usually have a morning routine? And when you're traveling this much, do you able to implement that as well? I could tell a, a picture-perfect story about how I open up my mornings by meditating and uh, <laughs> sitting and looking at the pictures of my beloved children and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that my... Agendas are often so uh, so packed that they start very early, so I climb out of bed very tired, I slap myself in the <laughs> face, take my shower, drink my coffee, and then I uh, start moving through the meeting schedule. So I think that's the only thing that is permanent when I'm traveling. That is, uh, I try to get as much out of the time as humanly possible, because when I come home, I would like to be uh, capable of focusing 100% on my children and my wife. I'm nobody to be copied in, in that regard. <laughs> I think that's fair enough that you that you prioritize that when you're back then. Great. So you have a background in philosophy and then you entered a very corporate world. Can you tell a little bit more about yourself and what is your background? How, how did that pan out? I studied philosophy and history and I was probably trending towards eternal unemployment with my master's degree because there's not too many jobs for philosophers in Denmark or any place. But then I was saved by the bell by my older brother that was at that time when I graduated and had my master's degree in philosophy and history. He was working in the HR department of the Danske Bank Group, which is one of the largest financial institutions in the Nordic. And in that capacity, he arranged a job interview between me and one of the executives. And I had never ever imagined that I should enter into the financial sector because I didn't know anything about it. But through coincidences and the help of my older brother and also an executive that was pretty, how should I say, open-minded towards bringing in people that had a different mindset and a different skill set than the one that you normally see in the financial sector. I started in the age of 25 as a junior marketing consultant without knowing what marketing was because I've never ever studied a line of marketing, without knowing what consulting was and with the humiliation of being called junior, even though that I perceived myself as a fairly adult person. And then um, I worked in the Danske Bank Group for six years and was so lucky to get six promotions on the way and ended up being the senior vice president of IGEA creation and the non-technology-based innovation in the company. So working with business development fundamentally, but starting with marketing and then turning in, into business development. Shortly after I had been promoted, my father became sick and died 
just before I turned 32. And he died when he was 64. So that meant that if I was going to leave life at the same age as him, I more or less precisely had half of my life left. And that made me think whether I then should perhaps be a little bit more courageous and explore other working environments, other industries than banking. And there I had the luck to be invited to become the chief marketing officer and member of the executive committee, Investors Wind Systems, which is the world's largest manufacturer of wind turbines, still are, and was also at that time. So I shifted from an organization that was very Scandinavian-focused into a company that was truly, truly global. Investors had uh, around 98% of its revenue generated outside Denmark, had manufacturing on most inhabited continents, and that was exactly what I was seeking for, the ability to work on a truly global scale. On two reasons. Firstly, I wanted to be a part of a multicultural environment, which you become when you become a part of a truly global organization. But I also wanted to find out how good I actually were at what I was doing. I wanted to find out whether I actually had a skill set and a quality level that was of a kind where I could compete with the very best in the world inside the disciplines that I was responsible for. And when you work in a company like Vestas, you're competing against the GEs and the Siemens of the world. So if you can beat them inside your discipline, then you should be allowed to say that then you probably have a skill set that is at an international level. And then I had six, seven beautiful years in investors working for a company that had a product that really resonated deeply with me, and namely a technology that are supporting the transition from a fossil fuel-based economy into a renewable energy economy. And while I was in investors, the company, due to the credit crunch and financial crisis that emerged in 2008 and in 2009, the company went into a significant crisis. And during that crisis, we had to reduce the workforce simply because the demand for the product decreased. So we unfortunately didn't need the amount of employees that we had when I joined the company. We were 23,000 employees when I came into the company, but through the downturn, that amount was reduced to close to 16,000 employees. And we started out laying off people in the absolutely wrong and most inhumane way you could do. And I take full co-responsibility for the fact that we did that. But I can just see now, and I can already see when we were in the midst of it, that it was not the right way of doing it. Namely, that we laid off 100 one month, then 200 the second month, then 50 the third month. And we continued like that, not just in one quarter, but actually for more than a year. So instead of actually taking a grab at the core challenge and then laying off a lot of people at one go, and then creating, you could say, room and space for certainty and security for the employees that was left behind and still had a job. We did it in the opposite way. We fired repeatedly in small sizes. And of course, that created an environment inside the organization where no employee could actually feel secure that they had a job tomorrow. And while we created that environment of uncertainty, we could sit in the executive management room at our performance management meetings and see that the quality levels in the factories the quality levels in the organization more broadly continue to be at an extraordinarily high level. Mm. And it made me wonder, how can that be? How can it actually be that employees that go to work with the fear that they get fired when they enter the office building or the manufacturing building, how can it be that they continue to show so much responsibility, Mm. so much work ethics, and deliver work at such a high quality? And I asked my chairman if I was allowed to investigate Mm. what the reason was. 
and he gave me the mandate to do so. So I traveled around with some of my good colleagues and employees and interviewed colleagues from all over the company in North America and Latin America and Asia, Southern Europe, the Nordics and so on and so forth. And I asked him, so is the reason why you continue to actually work so hard and with such a rigor, is that because you have trust in us in executive management? And everybody said, no, we don't have trust in you at all. You're the reason why the company is in crisis. So of course we don't trust you. Then I said, so do you then have trust in the turnaround plan that we have developed? Mm. And then half of them said, of course not. It's written by you. So of course I don't trust anything that is written and comes from you guys. And the second half said, I didn't even want to read the turnaround plan because it is done by you guys and I don't trust you. And then I continued That's a wake up call. Exactly. Yeah. To interview and ask, so what is it actually that makes you wake up, go to work and deliver a performance that is of such a high quality? And then two things emerged. Namely, that the reason why these colleagues, individuals and human beings came to work and delivered a a high performance output was because of the purpose of the company, firstly. So they didn't work for us in the executive management. They didn't work for the board. They didn't work for the shareholders. They didn't work because they believed in the strategy or the turnaround plan. They worked with such an ethics and determination because they truly believed in the purpose of the company, contributing to making sure that we would create a future based on renewable energy. And they were proud about the fact that they contributed to that, mm-hmm. proud about telling it to their kids, to their husbands and wives, to their friends, to their neighbors. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that emerged. Mm-hmm. The other thing that emerged as a reason why they worked so hard and with such a dedication, such a quality was that they worked for each other. They worked for the woman or the man that was standing beside them, their colleague. They worked to protect the social community that they had at their workplace. So they worked for each other because they felt that they belonged to that social community and they wanted to sustain that social community that they had at the workplace. And when I came back and I presented and reported upon my findings, I could also say to the board and my colleagues in the executive management team, that the two things that are actually keeping this company floating, what's actually making sure that this company can survive, mm-hmm. namely that we deliver products and solutions of the same high quality now as we did, even if we're in crisis, as we did before the crisis, is due to two things that we do not track and we do not invest in. Mm-hmm. Namely, we don't track the sense of purpose inside of our organization and we do not track the sense of belonging inside of our organization. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, a thought emerged inside my head that we're simply measuring an organization's commercial financial health based on the wrong metrics. Mm. We should measure it on sense of purpose, sense of belonging, and probably other things. Mm. And then I decided I want to investigate. Yeah. How was that received from the other board members in the organization when that was the finding? No, but that was actually received very well and very positively. Mm. And they agreed and they accepted that that was right. But as it often is in the classic way of running business, then you say, that's really, really interesting. Mm. It's very, very important. We will look at it when we're out of the crisis. Mm. And I said, I believe that we get out of the crisis in a more sustainable manner if we start looking at it now. But of course, I also understand that when a company is in crisis and whether you're a CFO or you are a chief technology officer or you're the COO, you are focused on making sure that what happens in your own domain is something that is under control. And then when somebody suddenly comes and suggests that we should make a monthly measurement and sense of purpose and sense of belonging, (laughs) of course, I do understand that emotionally that's a little bit hard to cope with. But intellectually, they understood it, but we didn't act upon it. 
And then we fought ourselves through the crisis and we started to hire people again and the economical environment in the world become better and the company started to prosper. And I could see the company was getting back on track and even stronger than ever before. I continued to have this notion inside my mind that there was something here I needed to explore deeper. So I explored that on the sides of my work as a CMO. I have to say that I am also an honorary professor in applied philosophy mm. at Aalborg University. So that gave me the opportunity to search deeper into what is it actually that makes human beings engaged in their work, motivated mm. and feel fulfilled at work. And suddenly, the more that I researched, the more that I digged into all the science in the area, it was clear to me that the most important thing to ensure as a leader in an organization is that you create a culture and you create a leadership style mm. that creates meaning in life for the human beings that come and work for you every day. Mm. And then I started to study, how do you measure meaningfulness? And as soon as I had the croquis of how you did that, then I knew that I had to leave the safe life as a corporate executive <laughs> and jump out and start my own company based on how we create more meaningful organizations and meaningful brands based on how we can actually put meaningfulness in the epicenter of our leadership style and our performance management and cultural development. That's incredible. So what's the core of meaningfulness? We have to differentiate between what provides meaning in life in the broad sense and then what creates meaning in life with the work that you're doing because it's not exactly the same. But what we do know above and beyond any discussion is what is it that needs to be in place for a person to feel meaning in life with the work that they're doing. And it's four things. You need to feel a clear sense of purpose with what you do and what you are part of, meaning that the purpose of the company is a purpose that resonates deeply with you on an existentialistic level. You actually feel that you're working for something that you perceive as being important, something that you feel is necessary in your own life and in other people's lives. Mm -hmm. So sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. The second of the four drivers is sense of leadership. Mm -hmm. You need to feel that you're exposed to a leadership that you find trustworthy, meaning the gap between what the leader says and what the leader do mm -hmm. is as small as humanly possible. A leadership style that is inclusive, meaning that when decisions are made, then you are involved in that decision process and that your leader actually involves you in explaining why the leader makes decisions that in certain cases is in opposition to what you think is right. Mm. And then finally, a leadership style, which is based on caring, that the employee can actually feel that the leader cares for them. And you therefore feel secured that if life at a certain time would take a turn to the dark side and you'll be challenged, hit by sorrow or just difficulties, that you have a leader that would actually embrace you, understand you and take care of you. If those three things are in place, then you'll feel a sense of leadership. Mm. Then the third element of the four is sense of belonging. Also what I found as I was traveling around investors, mm. meaning that you feel that you belong to that social community that you have at the workplace. Mm. It's a place that you miss when you're not there and you're longing to come back. And you're also pretty certain that the people will miss you when you are not there. Mm. So an environment of connection and intimacy between your colleagues and co-workers. And then the fourth driver to the highest possible sense of meaning in work for a human being is a sense of personal growth, that you actually feel that you become better at something, mm. 
that you learn something. Because none of us, independently of what role we have, whether we are receptionists, whether we are blue collar, white collar, whether we are below 30 or we are above 60, then none of us appreciates getting more stupid today than we were yesterday. So that's the four elements in meaningfulness and is therefore also the four parameters that you measure on if you want to know the meaningfulness quotient of your organization. And that's a methodology, a measurement uh, methodology that we have developed in my company, Voluntas. Yeah. And you've recently written a book about it that are now coming out in English. Exactly. Yeah, congratulations yes. for that. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, it's a really good book. I've been through it. Thank you very so much. what's the... Now you've got the book and you've got the framework, I would like to take the journey on from now on with the book and with Voluntas. The book on Voluntas is connected since I'm the founder of Voluntas and I'm the author of the book. If I start with what my hope with the book is, it is that we create an awareness, firstly an awareness about the fact that we're living with what I would call our lifetime's biggest paradox. Namely a paradox that is based on that on the one side we've never ever lived longer, never ever been richer, never ever been better educated, never ever had as many opportunities as we have today, not least due to technology. So in other words, we have seen over the past decades, the decade that we very soon will say goodbye to, a lot of social economical progressions at a speed and with a depth that we've never ever seen before. And it's positive. It's positive that we live longer. It's positive that people get more educated that we get richer and have more opportunities in life. And that should be celebrated. But as true as it is that we're seeing all those socio-economical progressions and improvements, it is equally true that we never ever have been as stressed, depressed, lonely, anxious and medicated in the Western world as we are today. In other words, what I hope that the book will provide as a first awareness and acknowledgement is that we're living for the first time in modern time where more wealth do no longer translate to more well-being for humans. And that paradox we need to take serious and we need to find solutions for how that paradox will be erased and made obsolete. Then I also hope that the book will help people to understand the fundamental difference between satisfaction, happiness and meaning. Because I believe from a philosophical perspective and therefore also from an existentialistic perspective, that we have confused it to a degree that is unsustainable. We simply no longer truly understand the difference between being satisfied, happy, and feeling meaning in life. Mm. And perhaps just to make sure that the listeners... Uh, I was about to say, can you tell me the difference between them? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it'd be good to get. So satisfaction is a feeling that is accumulated inside our mind when we have a need and that need is met. Mm. So need realization... And satisfaction is the one and the same thing. I would like a glass of water, I get a glass of water, I feel satisfaction. I want a new computer, I get a new computer at work, I feel satisfaction. I order a cab, it comes a time, I feel a great degree of satisfaction. We just need to understand that satisfaction and need realization is the one and the same thing. Happiness is something different than satisfaction. Happiness is this extraordinary moment in life where life unfolds itself more colorful, more warm, more fun, more beautiful, more loving than normally. But happiness is tied to a moment. Per definition, the definition of happiness is that it's tied to a moment. So you can't run around being happy 365, 24-7. It's simply impossible. Happiness comes and happiness goes. And those that won't accept the time constraint in the definition of happiness, meaning that it's tied to a moment, need to accept the semantic constraint 
of what happiness means because happiness is, as I said, extraordinarily moments. But if you had extraordinary moments all the time, it would become ordinary. So independently of whether we look at it from a semantic or timely perspective, you can't be happy all the time. Furthermore, sometimes you need to be unhappy. And sometimes you need to be dissatisfied. And it's actually healthy. And it's fair to be unhappy and dissatisfied. I order a cab and doesn't come at all. It's absolutely fair that I'm dissatisfied with that. And even call the cab company and let them know that I'm dissatisfied. I lose one of my loved ones. Then it's not only fair, then it's healthy that I express my unhappiness. Finally, you can't be both satisfied and dissatisfied in the one and the same second or the one and the same moment. You are in that moment either satisfied or dissatisfied. The same goes with happiness. You can't be both happy and unhappy in the same moment. You are either or. And that brings me to meaning because meaning is the only feeling that we can have in our lives at all times because meaning can live alongside unhappiness and dissatisfaction. Let me give you one very personal example. When I 11 years ago put my father in the grave, That day I was not satisfied. Happiness was the last feeling I was capable of accumulating inside my body, but it was a deeply meaningful moment for me to put him into the grave because it reminded me of all the love that I'd been given, all the privileges that I'd received, and it made me certain that there was waiting a life in front of me full of worthiness and hope, and that's exactly the definition in an existentialistic perspective of what meaning is. Meaning is when you stand in the now with your reflection on the life that you lived and your prediction of the life that lays ahead of you and you are convinced that there is a life of worthiness and hope in front of you, then meaning is generated. But too many of us are living a life where we want to be satisfied all the time. But that actually means that you need to have all your needs realized at all times, which is a pretty ecumenic way of living life. And it's probably also something that will make you lonely one day if you want your needs always to be those that are met first. Many of us are thinking that we need to be happy all the time and actually believe that there's other people that are happy all the time. Now, nobody is happy all the time because it's impossible, but as soon as you start striving towards being happy all the time, it's like an existentialistic Sisyphus myth. You'll never ever roll that stone over the mountaintop and you'll always be disappointed. And that's the reason why I hope with the book that more and more people will understand that what we truly should strive for is meaning not constant gratification and not happiness. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing I would hope in all humbleness uh, that the book will contribute to is an inspiration to leaders to understand that the infrastructures, philosophies and terminologies that they have been exposed to mm -hmm. for the past 75 years, three quarters of a century mm -hmm. are terminologies, infrastructures and also tools mm -hmm. that are redundant and has no relevance anymore because they were built to a time in history where we perceived employees as resources that we just need to use and utilize. But new generations are coming in and they will not accept to be viewed as an asset class or as a resource. They want to be viewed as whole human beings that has a potential that they want their leaders and their organizations to support them in realizing. So hopefully it will also inspire for leaders to dare to turn their back to many of the tools and structures that they're exposed to today. Yeah. So what would you do as a leader? I know amongst those you're like very involved with during the Jews and there's a bunch of young people working and driving it. How do you see them working different in the new generation to what we're doing, have done in the past based on these principles? I think firstly, they expect a much, much higher degree of trust from the get-go 
than my generation or the generation before. I'm 44, just so the listeners know which generation <laughs> I'm belonging to. So they expect trust. And I actually think it's fine. Mm. I think that whenever we meet a new person, we should start out by trusting them. Why should we ever build a relationship of intimacy based on distrust? Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm. And yeah. work is an intimate thing mm. because work is an integrated part of life. Mm. So that's also the reason why I don't believe in the work-life balance terminology. I actually find it deeply absurd because yeah. the work-life balance terminology is stating that work is one thing and life is something different, mm. meaning that they are fundamentally in opposition to each other, mm. which is, of course, rubbish because <laughs> yeah. work is an integrated part of life and therefore it's not about work-life balance, it's about life balance. Mm. And these millennials and the generation that comes after the millennials are coming to work as one human being, mm. insisting on that their one life is going to be as purposeful and meaningful as possible. Mm. But it's not meaningful to start collaborating with anybody based on distrust. Mm. So they want trust from the get-go. And I think that we should start as leaders mm. to give them that. If Definitely. we don't trust them, don't hire them. Yeah. And with trust also comes responsibility. So they want trust and they want responsibility. But just because they want trust and just because they want responsibility doesn't mean that they want to be on their own. Mm. They actually want leaders that are close to them, but not because they want to be checked day in and day out down to the minus detail, but because they want leaders to inspire them, mm -hmm. give them perspective, support them, which is yet again why micromanagement is something that is long gone as anything that will create any value in the workplace. Nonetheless, it's still what happens in most workplaces because you have a leadership hierarchy which is set up to ensure that we can micromanage from top to button. Mm. Then they, to a much higher degree, want to know what the purpose of the company is. When I took my first job, I didn't ask what the purpose of the Danske Bank Group was. That's totally different now. Now the majority of all millennials would actually prefer purposeful work mm. instead of a salary increase. It just shows something about that a change is, uh, is happening. Mm. And then finally, and not least, they want to grow, mm. they want to develop. And they see education as something that should be constant in their lives. Mm. So where my generation, and especially the generation that came before me, mm. saw education as something that ended after university. Mm. Then you've done your education and from It's there milestone, on... Yeah. Exactly. Then you work. So there was a hard stop between education and work. They see education and thereby personal growth as a constant part of their life mm. through their full adulthood. Mm. And that means, as an example in in Joe and the Jews, that in Joe and the Jews, the vast majority of all the employees are in between 18 and 25. So a very, very young workforce, mm. several thousand in the workforce and a very, very youthful one. But we have created what we call a Joe University. Mm. And we've done that of two reasons. Firstly, because young people want, as I said, to be stimulated, mm. want to grow, want to develop. And most of the people that we get in, of course, is not at a university and is perhaps not even planning on ever going to a classical university. So we also want to provide them an educational, you could say, system mm. that is not based on the classical curriculums of academia, mm. but a curriculum in which that independently of whether you are extremely good at French or you are extremely good at algebras, you can still grow and develop through the company, through fundamentally your whole life if you want to. And I think if you have these things in place, which are different from what were there a decade ago, you become a brand that would be meaningful for young people to work for. Yeah. And hopefully you'll have advocates in the long run from that as no, well. No, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a very important point. Yeah. That is, it's actually very essential what you're saying. Mm. 
Because the best measurement of whether you actually is a good workplace is not only the retention figures, it's also those that left the company but continues to speak highly and warmly about the culture and the leadership style that is conducted in that company. Because we should also remember that some people leave the company because it's a healthy and natural thing for them to do, mm-hmm. not because they're dissatisfied or dismotivated or not feel privileged, mm-hmm. but just because they were curious about how life would look from another perspective, meaning in another organization, mm-hmm. or that life changes and their priorities, kids and so on and so forth, the priorities changes and therefore they want to go or work somewhere else. Those people that left the company with a positive connotation about that here mm. people are led as human beings and not as resources is the best advocacy mm. you can have out there in a time where there is a tough and rough competition for talent, not least among the millennials and the generation that mm. comes after. Mm. Do you think it will also impact, and maybe already are for brands, that one thing are how they're employees are perceiving and wanting to be a part of a company based on values and the way they feel they're part of the journey. But the way we buy into brands as well as consumers, do you think meaningfulness will have an impact in the long run as well? Absolutely and indisputably. The interesting thing is that Havas actually have done for the past, I believe, three years, a global study on meaningful brands. So as well as we know what creates meaning at work, for human beings, we actually also know what drives the perception of a brand being meaningful for me as a consumer. Mm. So what their study have shown is that it's only 23% of all brands in the world mm. that lives up to the definition of being a meaningful brand. Mm. And the amount of meaningful brands are decreasing, have decreased every year the study have been done. So fewer and fewer brands are perceived as being meaningful. Mm. So what is the definition of a meaningful brand and what does it result in. So a meaningful brand has four building blocks. Two of them is exactly the same as any other company that is earning money and is alive. You have a functional product, so you have a product that works, which is pretty fundamental for having a business. And then you have a price point that makes sure that your key clients and customers see value in money in acquiring your functional product. Mm -hmm. That's the two building blocks that all companies that exist and earn money shares. But then meaningful brands add two things to how they run their business, how they develop their products, how they innovate their processes and have their interactions with their customers and the surrounding society. Firstly, they are perceived as a brand that makes a positive difference in other human beings' lives. And the fourth and last building block is they are perceived as a company that has a positive impact on society mm. broadly. Mm. The one about that you actually are a company that through your solutions, products, etc., have a positive impact on other human beings' life, mm. as I said, that could be through your product. Mm. The fourth building block is that you as a whole have a positive impact mm. on society. Mm. But coming back to the two building blocks in the bottom are becoming a meaningful brand. Mm -hmm. Those that are just having a price point that is competitive and a product that is functional, Mm -hmm. they're commodity brands, Mm -hmm. per definition. Mm -hmm. That means that if that's the only thing you have, then if a competitor comes in with a product as functional as yours, Mm -hmm. 
and puts a price point one percentage lower than yours, you have to follow it. Mm-hmm. And that's the definition of being a commodity brand. It's actually pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. 77% of all brands in the world mm-hmm. taking into consideration the billions of US dollars, sterling pounds, Danish krona that is used on building brands, that 77% of them are just commodity brands. Yeah. We're doing something wrong in the way that we build brands. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking about, I know it's easy to pick on the tobacco industry and oil and stuff like that, but then take a popular brand like Ryanair. Yeah. People hate them like yes. to a long extent. Yes. They still use them because they're competitive in price, but there will be a point where economy and stuff are so good that they will have to change strategy because otherwise... I totally concur. And I'll actually say it's not only about that they will be challenged right now when the economy becomes even better and we have more money in our pocket. They will be challenged the first time anybody is capable of delivering a flight from Gatwick to Malaga at the same price as them because there's no loyalty to the brand. The only reason why people choose Ryanair is because of price and the fact that they can fly you from A to B in the cheapest possible manner. They're not perceived as a company that does a positive difference for other human beings' lives. They're not perceived as a company that is providing an overall positive impact on society. So that's the definition of a meaningful brand. That is, it's actually a brand that you would care about if it wasn't there tomorrow. And it's a brand that you're willing to share life with. Whereas... A commodity brand is one that is focused on share of wallets mm. and you'll put as much of your wallet into them mm. as long as there's nobody else that can give you the same solution to a lower price. Mm. That's very interesting. So I just want one last question yes. before we finalize. A little bit of a look into the crystal ball. Brands are where we are today. How do you see them evolve in future? There's a meaningful this. There's also like big impact of digital world and you have to be everywhere and like a successful brand, what will they do to do right and still be relevant in 10 years time? I think that that the brands that will be relevant and potent and successful at the end of the next decades mm-hmm. will be characterized by three things. Mm-hmm. They have understood the difference between legality and morality mm-hmm. and they will go above and beyond what is a lawful business to become a business of morality. That's one thing that will characterize them. A second thing is that they will understand that a brand can't give values to itself, exactly as a human being can't give a value to itself. So I'm sitting here and then I'm telling you that I'm a very humble person. I'm extremely humble, just so you know. Okay. Humbleness (laughs) is a value for me. Yeah. And you'll not and say, I hope so, Morten, I don't know you. We just started our conversation. I'll find out down the road. And then you'll ask all the people that you know that knows me, is, is Morten humble? And nobody will confirm it. And then we meet again in a month's time and I'll state again that I'm an extremely humble person and humbleness is a value for me. Mm-hmm. But independently of how many times I state that I'm humble, I'm not humble if nobody will confirm it. Mm-hmm. So the brands that will be successful are those that understand that values is not something a brand can give to itself. It's something that other people can give to you, your clients, your suppliers, your employees, mm-hmm. society in general. But what you can give yourself is you can give yourself virtues. So the brands that will be successful at the end of the next decade will be virtuous brands. Mm-hmm. Brands that have defined clear virtuous mm-hmm. parameters and coordinates for what type of behavior and morality they want to carry themselves accordingly with. And then thirdly, 
especially if you are a consumer-facing company. But it's actually independently of whether you are so-called B2B or B2C, that those abbreviations as B2B and B2C is useless because all brains, per default, are human-to-human brains, H2H brains, and that all brain survives by its ability to create intimate relationships with its key constituencies of uh, clients and customers. And out of an H2H approach, you will also accept the fact that digitalization is a gift, but it will become a curse if you think that it could actually truly replace the human touch because it can't. So you need to find a way, and the successful brands will, how we use digitalization to humanize the relationship between brands and its consumers. Mm. That makes sense. Thank you so much well, for Thank you for so that. much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Buses for Breakfast are hosted by me and produced by Studio Roo. If you like our show and want more exciting stories like this, don't forget to follow us. You can get all episodes for free on any of your preferred podcast services. 